Hello and welcome to MacBytes episode 53. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. In this episode, May has not hurt his paw, I've not poisoned Elaine and my Lenovo laptop has finally cooled down enough to take back to work after a week off. Seriously now, in this week's show we have some line updates including how to put the colour back into the sidebar. We surpassed last week where we did three software reviews and this week we have four. And Elaine reveals what Mac Bite and Mac Jim did to reawaken her desire. Ooh, that definitely worth an ooh. <laughs> Yes, but first, uh, feedback from last week. The most talked about item from episode 52 was PopClip. You appear to love it as much as I do. Uh, Jenna said she bought it on my recommendation and loves it. So simple, so worth it, which was exactly my sentiments. Kirshen also got it, said what a nice little Mac app. Amanda said she absolutely loved it. It's fabulous. How did I ever live without it? You find the best apps, which was exactly yeah. how I was with it. Um, I'm actually on a machine at the moment that doesn't have it. And I'm lost. <laughs> you always are when you're missing software, aren't I you? I am. Totally bereft. Yeah, I've been using it this week as well, and I've got used to it. I find it faster than using the buttons on the Logitech uh, MX Revolution. You know, the copy and paste buttons on the side? Yes, I had those when I used that. But I did first try and use it in Google Docs, which apparently you told me um, afterwards it doesn't work on that. Not much works in Google Docs. Don't get me going. Something else to break Google for. Uh, I have great problems with Typinator. I tried Text Expander, thinking maybe it was just a Typinator issue. But no, uh, Google Docs has got its own thing going on. So I, I can get uh, Typinator and Text Expander to expand things. What it will not do correctly is um, use the little, I use the section key, which is in the top left of your keyboard. And I preface all my shortcuts with that. And it doesn't like that. You have to put the section key at the end, which is the first thing. But also it can't handle format very well. So if I expand something, even if I select rich text, everything just comes in black. So I'm guessing Google at fault again. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Indeed, which is sad because once you get used to this thing, if it doesn't pop up, you're, you're quite indignant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, moving on, uh, something that's been going on for a long time, as regular listeners will know, is the problems that I have with my Outlook calendar. Oh, no. Um, yes. Yes, again. I'm going to go through it again, 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 again. Um, for those, most people do know that uh, what I've been trying to do, and it's, it's, it's a holy grail of mine, it's, it's something I've... Yeah, I'm, I must be not be the only person that wants to do this, but I've got my Outlook calendar at work and I want to be able to get that calendar quickly and easily onto my iPhone, iPad um, and all my other devices. But Minster had solved all your problems. Minster did. Minster came up with a great suggestion, which was to set up a rule so that every... Um, Every, every meeting request that comes into Outlook, uh, which has an accompanying email, then gets forwarded on automatically to my um, my personal email address, which is linked to my Google account, and it will automatically update my Google Calendar. It did work for two weeks. I can feel I think, a butt coming on. Yeah. A um, couple of episodes ago, I tried it, and I said it worked for two weeks. Um They've broken it. They've broken the ability at work. Never underestimate the ability of your company to break something. 
Yeah, what they've done is they've disabled the facility. They've done it at Exchange to server level. They've disabled the ability to automatically forward on email to external email addresses. Do you know what would improve productivity no end? To let us do what we want. Well, yes, that as well. But I was thinking if, if they're going to tinker at server level with email, just stop incoming email. Problem solved. Then you'd never be able to get hold of me. Ah, but I have other ways. This Despite being reduced to smoke signals earlier this week. This is indeed true. Yes, the, t the tech failed grandly, but it, it seems as soon as you find something that helps you, they ban it. That is what IT departments are for, isn't it? Not when I'm in charge. No, I'm obviously doing it all wrong. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, so do you have an alternative? I've gone back to the original way of working, which was to export the calendar to a CSV file and then import it into Google Calendar. But it actually now only takes five minutes. The problem was it was taking like 20 minutes, uh, but that was when we were running um, Windows 2000. So I think something good to be said about Vista. Really? Hmm. I think it's ridiculous, but I've said that before. I, I, you, you have one life, so... Work calendars at home, it's, it's logical. It's completely logical. Same as at home calendars access at work. But what do I know? I organise myself. Now, I have none of these little problems that you have. Now you're getting into work-life balance issues. Oh, please, let's not go there. I was just going to say... Let's no, no, there. let's not go there. <laughs> Should we move on to something more up-to-date? Something more, more interesting, please. More interesting, yes. Uh, good news for all those who thought that Final Cut 7 was no more. Yes, thankfully. Spe specifically because there's no replacement whatsoever for Soundtrack Pro. Um, at least Final Cut Pro uses, whether you liked it or not, you had Final Cut Pro 10. Audio editors, we were just staring into an abyss. I know that there's logic, but logic is more geared to music, whereas Soundtrack Pro was more geared to soundtracks for video, which is why I use it. And it's brilliant. And it disappeared. And I had high hopes when they announced Final Cut Pro 10 that, you know, they were saying, we've got lots of work on it and there's things that we, we can't tell you yet. So I was quite calm, thinking, well, you know, there'd be motion, there'd be colour, there'd be compressor. And of course, there'd be something for Soundtrack Pro. And there wasn't. So it's sort of back, but it's not really back, is it? It's not. They announced it the other day and they said that Final Cut Pro 7 was still going to be available, but only via an 800 telesales number. That's 800 in the States, I presume, not the not the UK mm -hmm. 0800 number. So it won't be available through the stores. It sounds like a, a time-limited, never-to-be-repeated clearance sale to me. That's exactly what I thought, because it was saying it was sort of limited. So maybe it's just an old stock clearance, because they did recall it Um it could have created some sort of market, couldn't it? If, when Final Cut 10 came out, people was, were so antagonistic with it that anybody, any stores who had Final Cut Pro Studio remaining, they could have really put the price up. So I know that Apple um, recalled them. So they've probably got a nice little stock of them sat somewhere. So maybe I'm that's sure why. Have. Steve only has to turn his back for five minutes and Apple are doing a U-turn. Hmm. I wonder if Tim Cook could do something about iWork. That would be good for you, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, it would. Two and a half years, still waiting. <laughs> Don't we know it? Yes, vocally. Vocally I'm waiting. Back to Final Cut. Didn't you have a serious issue with Final Cut Pro Ten? I did. I, everything was working so swimmingly. And then catastrophe struck. Um, what happened was I have two external drives that I 
uh, had put um, Final Cut Pro projects on. And I really didn't like iMovie. When iMovie went to, to the new version, I really didn't like it because the media management seemed nonsensical to me. But I persevered with Final Cut Pro 10 and I've, I've adopted the, the working strategies that it wants. I mean, you really don't have a choice. I know you can do this linking business, but you're only going to lose stuff. So I'd, I'd stuck with the projects uh, being on external drives and everything was working fine until I started Final Cut Pro 10 and I had a drive missing. The drive just wasn't listed at all. I thought, hmm, problem, because it's got all my projects on it. So I closed it down, started it up again. Nope, still not there. Still problems. So I did the, the usual, turned it off and on again. And I don't reboot often. I think I've got uptime of about 36 days at the moment and counting. So I had to reboot the thing and it still didn't come back. At this stage, I could see the drive, but there was just nothing in the projects. It didn't even acknowledge that there were projects on the drive at all. So I started having to research how it works. How does it know that there's projects on that drive? Because it could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be at root level. They could be anywhere. And no, other people were having issues. Uh, they were having issues importing media, losing connectivity with media. Yes, people had problems where the projects weren't there, but usually a reboot seemed to sort it out and I was getting absolutely nowhere. So I was getting increasingly concerned at this stage. It was as if Final Cut Pro 10 just did not like this drive and it's the one I've been using for weeks. So it couldn't have been that, but it appeared to be. So I applied some lateral thinking. I thought, what's changed since the last time I used it and everything was fine. And it was nothing that I'd done in Final Cut Pro 10. It was a ridiculous... I, I, I don't even like to use the word fix because I just don't think this should happen at all. But the only thing that I could think that I had done with the drive... Um, people were saying that if it's not... If it's a FAT drive, if it's a FAT32 drive, you have problems. If it's NTFS, you have problems. Um, because of all the, the way it works with the metadata. But this drive hadn't changed. Obviously, it had been working. I hadn't reformatted it, heaven forbid. It was nothing like that. So if you are having problems, then check those things out first. But in my case, it was something so simple, which was what I had done was I had taken my mom's digital camera and I had backed up her card for her. And how I did that was just drag the folder off it. I first put a copy on my desktop. Then I put a copy in my backups for her. And then I put a copy on a drive that I have dedicated to photos. But until I also burnt it to DVD for her, I put a fourth copy. It doesn't exist unless there's three copies, but I like to have an extra one. I just took this folder, which was the DCIM folder, and put it in the root of the drive that had my Final Cut Pro 10 projects on it. And that was it. It did not like a DCIM folder, which is a digital camera, camera images folder. I think that's what the um, acronym stands for. Obviously, it is the standard name that you find every camera will use. And Final Cut Pro 10 did not like it at all. Just having a folder with that name in the root was enough. It refused point blank to see the projects. So I was just gazing at the drive thinking, have I put something on here that's upset it? I looked at this folder and thought, well, I've done that in the last day or so. So I thought, I'll just rename the folder. I won't do anything else. I'll just rename the folder. Started Final Cut Pro 10 up again, all my projects were back. That is enough to give somebody a heart attack. <laughs>
<laughs> and you think you I've not done anything I didn't move the projects I didn't rename the projects I didn't do anything I didn't do anything and then you realise that you've just backed up your photos and that is enough I thought that was ridiculously stupid it is it's one of those undocumented features isn't it it's like years ago on um, Access if you created a field and called it Facts oh yes that was a classic like I found wasn't it yeah mm. Yes, Access does have its little foibles. But then they should be using the Lazinski reddick naming conventions if they're using Access. Tut if you're not. Let's not go down that route either. Oh, happy days. <laughs> anyway, hot on the heels of Apple taking away colour from uh, Lion and iTunes, Google's now got in on the act. Although we can only go off the pictures for this as uh, our accounts haven't been upgraded. Or should that be uh, downgraded? Indeed. Yes, what they've done is, um, well, I think with apps accounts, we've said they're very strange. that They're updating half of your app. Um, well, half of your app. So my mail's been updated, but yours hasn't. Mm. So you might get this um, <clears throat> upgrade, in inverted commas, to your docs before I do. But yes, they've taken the colour away from the icons. So you now have a toolbar, and instead of having the nice little coloured icons, which do help, they do help with navigation, and they're all black and white. They do. It looks like Word 2. I was, I was going to say it looks like Word 2. To be honest, I don't think it bothers me uh, that much, um, because I can see where all the icons are. Um, it's, it's not a major crisis for me. But I know you... There are, no, there it's, are... Not, I mean, it's not a crisis, because you know what the buttons do. And as I look at the buttons... I don't actually use that many. I mean, I, I don't use the undo by going up to the menu no. and clicking the button. But I'm thinking of things... I mean, I am old enough, sadly, to remember Word 2. And for those who aren't, Word 2... Um, we're talking Microsoft Word 2 on Windows. It had toolbars, but they were black and white. So it really was... I mean, and that was... It was around the time of Windows 311, wasn't it? Was it was. Early um, 90s, I think. Yeah, they made a big, big issue of when it went to and i think it went straight to word six didn't it yeah which was one of the sort of standard versions of word it was around for years when they went to word six they made a big issue of the fact that for navigation purposes and clarity they'd added colors to the buttons and one of the ones which seriously does help is when you change the font color and there's a bar underneath and it changes color another one is the highlighter pen which google docs does have you know if i've put yellow on it then i'd like to see it yellow it's not being picky, it's just logical to me. I think those, those two do need colour, but I don't think the rest particularly do. They don't particularly need it, but I don't think it's an enhancement to take it away. I don't know why they've taken it away. Well, I don't understand at all with Apple the logic of draining the colour from everything. I really don't understand it. No, not with Apple. Um, Especially in the Finder, it's even more yeah, important. Oh, it is. You could instantly see your external hard drives, but hmm, yes, Google jumped that bandwagon as well. But it could be worse because have you seen the proposed interface changes for Windows Explorer? I have, and and again, um, I think I think it's logical because it is following the ribbon which people have got used to. I don't like the ribbon. I just I know they proved when when I had the misfortune around 2006, which was when I was moving to a Mac, I had to um oh dear what would you say endure is? suffer suffer yeah endure um, Office 2007 and we have a training group and the people in the training group you know people were seriously this wasn't a joke people were seriously saying they would retire before they would use 2000. And I thought that was a little excessive. And I had to endure this thing. I had to learn all the apps, which 
wasn't sort of learning from scratch. I already knew all the apps from, from years before. So you're just updating your skill set. I will never get over the fact that the ribbon looks huge. It might not be huge. In fact, Microsoft did a thing that proved it was two pixels narrower. But it doesn't look it. it and it's what it bigger. looks like. It does look bigger. I, yeah, I agree with you on that. I know you mentioned it. Well, if, if it goes bigger, then you're looking at a nice touchscreen interface. But Microsoft haven't got a nice touchscreen interface. They will. It's, it'll come. So, and this, this, is the, this, is, this is the first step to touchscreen. Yes, but why make them bigger now? Or just make it an option and be done with it? Because in 2007... It wasn't an option. You you couldn't disable it or configure it in any way at all. And th there's there's a couple of links we'll put in the show notes. But as somebody pointed out, Microsoft have put a blog post up where they're um, justifying the changes that they've made. And I have great sympathy for any Windows users because I'm struggling with the Finder at the moment with it being so bland. Um, and this, this thing was research where Microsoft had researched it and they decided that they were going to put sort of the most used features in, in the most obvious place. But they proved themselves that in that case, 50% of what's on the toolbar people don't use at all so what's it there for i don't understand yeah, so that just bring up that um that survey see if i can find it no that's the wrong link we had two links didn't we there were there were three links i've put three links there for you to read and enjoy no you see i didn't use the windows explorer i didn't think it was powerful enough so on windows i used directory opus which was fabulous and i searched endlessly on the mac for something that was as powerful but they adopted a, a completely different strategy with the interface instead of just creating more and more and more toolbars they put in effect what looks like a toolbar only it's vertical right down the middle so you have this dual pane view and down the middle you have this toolbar and it's completely configurable you decide what goes on there and you had the the obvious feature to me which would be let's say you're working with some documents and you want to move some of them from one drive to another drive well Mentally, for me, I go from left to right. So on the left-hand side, I'd have the drive with the documents. And on the right-hand pane, I'd have that open on a drive, the one I'm moving the documents to. So all I had to do was just select a document. And as I clicked on it, I could get a preview if I wanted. And then in the middle, where this bar was, one of them was make a copy to the right-hand window. One of them was to move it to the right-hand window. I could make multiple selections on the left-hand side and then either move or copy to the other window. That, to me, was just totally logical. And there's nothing that Microsoft have put on that interface that is in any way as logical to me at all. No, if you, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the, the, the web page now, the, the link, and they've got things like um, open and edit. So open a document and edit a document. And only 2% of users, according to their survey, um, use that feature from within the, uh, the, the Windows Explorer. So what's the difference between opening a document and editing a document? If you could explain it to me, I might use it. I don't know. I'd have to read up on that. Uh, hmm. Maybe if you open it, you're only looking at it. It could be. It could be read only as opposed to edit. Yes, but it still sounds ridiculous. Open or edit. It does. It does. Um, I mean, I take your point about what buttons they've put on there, but I, I think the idea of actually putting a ribbon on Windows Explorer is good because it's then following suit from the Office apps that most people are used to. And I think it is the first step towards uh, a touchscreen. And may maybe we will see Microsoft Office on the iPad. You never know. <laughs> I 
think you've been drinking the Windows Kool-Aid? We've got one note on the iPad, so why not? Mm, you might have. The first thing OneNote did, and anyway, it's not on the iPad. If it was on the iPad, it might be more useful. It's on the phone. It's only two times on the iPad. Yes, OneNote would be much more useful if the first screen I hadn't stumbled across said, log in with your Windows ID, your Windows Live ID or something. And I thought... And then you couldn't find your Windows Live ID. Well, it's been a while. <laughs> Let's say that. It's been a while. Uh, I probably have got one somewhere. Elaine, Windows, Windows, Elaine. Let me reacquaint you with each other. <laughs> No, you're okay. Don't worry. Well, the thing was, it wasn't in one password. It doesn't And if it's count. not in one password, it doesn't count. So I was sat there thinking, oh, where would I have put a password I last used five, six years ago? <laughs> On a post-it note in a desk drawer. No, I was more organised than that. I did have a password manager for Windows. Um, personal something. Personal no base, was it? No, no, no. I think it was called personal password something like that. Sounds like The it. icon was a caveman. I never did quite <laughs> understand that. <laughs> but I thought, well, not a problem then. It'll be in there. So if I could crank up a version of Windows at any point, then I could, you know, put personal passworder on it, assuming it's still alive, and I could extract my password. And then I thought, OK, then that just leaves one question. What's the master password? And I thought, well, if that's not in one password, then I'm... Hmm. <laughs> so... Yes, I don't know who they watched when they said this was what you should use, but then I don't know who Apple asked about removing the colour. But never mind them, never mind them. I have found a way to bring the colour back. Oh, yes. It's fabulous. I love it. The colour's back on on my finder. We did talk when they did this with um, iTunes that you could also bring the colour back in iTunes. And I tried it just to see if I could do it. And yes, it, it did come back. Problem with iTunes was they were at the time with it being brand new. They were doing bringing out sort of virtual point releases virtually every three or four days. And every time you installed a new version, you had to go back and do this hack to put the colour back. So with iTunes, I must admit, I, I kind of tidied up a bit and I put stuff in folders and organised it a different way. I don't think I should have to change how I organise it because they've decided it looks better in black and white. But that's what I did with it. But the finder in Lion is not getting any better for me. I am not growing to love it. There's no configuration options anyway. So I decided I would have to do some research and put the colour back. Now, last week we talked about, and yes, people, it really was only last week. <laughs> You're surprised, aren't you? Yes, last week we talked about a symbol plugin, and I was talking about it in relation to Saft and saying that we'd decided to ditch Saft, but Mike was still having problems because it would load or try to load every time he used Safari. And I explained that it was a simple plugin. Well, that's how this bring the colour back works. Uh, I'll put a link to the file. And what you do is you go to this link, have a read up about it. You download um, a zip file. Inside the zip file, you will find a symbol plugin. Now, for that to work on your system, you'll need the symbol framework to make it work. But if you've ever used anything, uh, in this case, in my case, it was Saft, then that will install it for you. If you don't have symbol installed, then you will need symbol, the symbol framework. Um, and then all you've got to do is unzip the thing. It will create a DMG. Uh, mount the DMG and move the bundle into the symbol folder, which was the same folder I was tinkering with last week, uh, which is Macintosh HD. Um, oh, help me out here. Library application support symbol plugins, I think. But you will find it. You will find it in there. 
and uh, that's it. Uh, what I then did, now the, the page that I was reading it from said you may need to uh, restart the finder or even restart the machine and you might need to do it more than once but I didn't all I did was go to force quit and restart the finder did it once and the color came back oh I am a happy happy bunny you are and a genius too yes that as well you know, they'll be removing the colour from the minimise and restore traffic light buttons next. Oh, please don't <laughs> give them any ideas, please. <laughs> yeah, you never know. You've had a couple of successes, though, this week, haven't you, with uh, lion issues? Yes, we should call this section Lion Watch. Yes, one of the things that was um, giving me nightmares at the prospect of upgrading with um, no safety net in place was the Connect add-in. Um, it's the Adobe Acrobat Connect add-in. Now, you don't need the add-in if you're just attending Connect meetings but you do need the add-in if you're sharing your screen. And I explained that I had it installed on the Snow Leopard install that I put Lion over the top of, um, but it does have... it's a little, shall we say, temperamental. Temperamental would cover it, wouldn't it? Um, Connect can be a little bit... well, the add-in can be temperamental, and it can think that it isn't there, and then you have to reinstall it. And part of the problem was you, you get taken to a page in your browser and it says click yes to install or no not to, and you can't click either. So um, it's a really simple solution. The Connect users, who are a, a sort of user group online, so it's connectusers.com, have put up a download page, so connectusers.com slash downloads, and you can download the plugin from there and install it manually. Now, it's not as manual as the alternative manual process that I was doing last week. So it's just like installing a normal piece of software from a DMG. And it works because we tried it on your machine, didn't we? Yeah, it uh, works perfectly. Yours was the one that was giving us the click yes, click no, and neither worked. And uh, it worked. So we're now up to date with that one. Another one was Airfoil, which they released 4.5.6 and then had to pull it because it was uh, conflicting with other applications. And I said I wasn't seeing any problems with 4.5.6, so I left it. I didn't go back to 4.5.5. Um, they've now released 4.5.7 and it's completely compatible with Lion. Although I'm still having an issue and I'm not sure if it's airfoil or if it's something else, but um, I had a problem with sound from a GoToMeeting or GoToWebinar um, session. And the problem was I could hear the sound, but it wasn't being recorded properly. So it wouldn't transmit it properly. So I'm going to have to do more testing on that. That could well be um, a planet's aligning situation rather than anything wrong with either of the software. It's like putting two and three pieces of software together and it causes problems. Um, and more on Lion Watch. Adobe. Guess what? No sign of anything yet. But in the meanwhile, one of the really serious, well, not serious serious, but seriously annoying issues um, is fireworks. And it's a specific issue involving a colour picker. Well, I have found you an application to solve this problem uh, called Colour Snapper. But there is more on that later in the app review section. And before anybody thinks, well, it's Adobe, what do you expect? Can I just mention again, I'm, I'm hoping that keep mentioning it, they'll do something about it. But the Pixelmator clone stamp tool is still broken and has been since February. I'm really upset about that, actually, because Pixelmator loads much quicker than uh, Photoshop and I would use it more. I just find that the clone stamp is 
so important to what I do most of the time. Even if I'm just opening up an image to crop it, I might want to just clean it up a little bit. And I would do that on a separate layer. And the clone stamp, it works on the same layer, but it is broken if you need to stamp all layers. And it's been broken for seven, eight months. Please, please fix it. I don't think they're going to fix it until Pixelmator 2 comes out, which was supposed to be this summer. And it's now September and I don't know about you, but it's not very summery here. So I'm hoping that that will be released soon as well. Yeah, come on, guys, please release Pixelmator 2. Um, I've had enough earache for uh, a few months. What? <laughs> if you break my toys and they broke my toys. Yes. Anyway, on to Chatbytes. And um, yes, behind the scenes at Mattbytes headquarters. Um, exclusive pictures last week and you were all very interested. Uh, maybe in the microphone and the boom arm that it's on. Yes, because lots of interest, lots of interest. Anyway, um, in this uh, Mattbytes newsletter, which is in my head at the moment, but obviously it will be um, letter to page at some point between now and the show being released, you get to see Mike's little den. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, I'm going to have to tidy it up first, though. Yes, mine's always tidy. Mm. <laughs> yes, that funny sound you can hear, that's me buffing my nails on my collar. Yes, anyway, we also had from Derek a fabulous, fabulous link to an iPhone concept. Mm, I wondered what an iPhone concept was as well. It was interesting. Wow. Very cool, I thought. It was really cool. And um, we'll have to put a link into it. You really do need to see the video. But this it was a concept of an iPhone in the future. And it was just marginally thicker than a piece of paper, wasn't it? And the screen went, went right to the edge. And it has a, a laser keyboard. So you just sort of prop it up. And it projects a keyboard onto any surface. And, and you just type and... Back oh, to wow. me tidying my desk again. Yes. <laughs> and um, a holographic display as well. And there was me thinking, do you know, if the next iPhone had a little pocket projector, I'd be happy. <laughs> that would be so cool. It would. But this was majorly, majorly cool. So thanks to Derek for that. That was gorgeous. You will have me salivating all over the desk. Yes, it was gorgeous. It really was. And iPhone 5, supposedly, just around the corner, apparently. There's a joke there somewhere. An iPhone walked into a bar. No, I'm going to leave it there. I'm sure everybody has heard about yet another errant iPhone that would appear to have escaped the mothership. They've got to be doing it deliberately, surely. I would but guess so. I thought there was a possibility it was deliberate last time, but, you know, you're going to do it once. Don't do it twice. It's not funny the second time. <laughs> it's not believable the second time either. Uh, so iPhone 5 soon, soon, soonish. I was hoping for, while we're talking iPhones and iPods and September events, nothing announced yet see if i say nothing announced yet they'll announce it two minutes after we finish recording so nothing announced yet from apple devious there devious i was thinking itunes 11 complete rewrite but it's not going to happen is it no no it's just gonna be another tinker yeah. stick something else on the top and it'll probably run even slower itunes is the only application and this includes anything from Adobe, that beach balls on my machine. I've got 16 gig of RAM and an i7, and it beach balls. Somebody said to me at work, um, if Apple is so good, how come iTunes is so awful? <laughs> and I had to agree with her. I, When I first started with iTunes, it was okay, but you know, once you put more and more and more stuff into it, which you will, especially as they've made it the centre of their digital hub, um, and it isn't actually any better 
I thought my problem was the podcasts. I probably have too many podcasts in there. I have quite a bit of music, but the library itself is around the 1.2 terabytes. Yes, I mean terabytes, not gig. So I figured that was my problem. Um, but I built another iTunes library for my mum when she got her Apple TV. And that has no music whatsoever. It's just TV stuff. And it has no podcasts. So it only really has two sections. There's no audio books. There's no playlists. There's nothing. All there is are TV programmes and movies. And I'd say her library loads even slower than mine. Because when I have my iTunes running and she has her iTunes running and you turn the Apple TV on, obviously it sees both libraries. And if you go to hers, it sort of loads in very slowly. Go to mine, it does actually seem to load in quicker, even though it's much bigger. So I don't know what's going on there, but a complete rewrite would be really nice, but I'm not, I'm not sensing it. Because I'm seeing that there's people are saying, oh, there's a new beta, there's a new beta, which is thing, I'm thinking, yeah, but you know, if it was brand new, I think we'd have heard about it. And I'm, I'm not hopeful. But anyway, on to better software. Yes, our four. Four, I know. We spoiled you last week and this week we've added another one. App reviews. So I'm going to start with something that um, it's been out for a few months, but it really, it, it's had a recent upgrade within the last 10 days. It's had an upgrade and it's just amazing. It's an app called Clocks. Now you may have heard of it before. When it started life, it started life as Clocky. But it changed its name quite a while back now to Clocks. And I think Clocks is a better name because that's exactly what it is. It's for the time zone challenged amongst us, which is probably pretty much everybody. Uh, yeah. Anybody who works in multiple time zones, which I certainly do. And actually, in the online world now, that's probably virtually all of us. We must have friends all over the place. So what it is, it's a menu bar app. Um, you can display on that menu bar just an icon. But you can also display the time or a location and the time. And there's plenty of options for adding the day of the week and or the date to that as well. And the name clocks comes from the fact that what you do is you can add multiple clocks to the application for each location that you choose. And then when you click on the icon or you can use a shortcut key, um, you get a dialog box a little drop down, beautifully designed with a clock representing each location that you've selected. So when you come to add a clock, you can search by time zone or you can search by location. Now, I found that particularly useful because sometimes I want to, I, I don't really want to put a location and it's a time zone that I'm working in, not a location. So for something like Pacific time in the States, I have a lot of webinars that run on that time zone, which is eight hours behind me. So I don't particularly want to type in a location. I want a time zone. So I typed in PST and it came up with the correct time zone. But there's some times where I'm attending a webinar and it's a virtual online webinar, obviously, but the meeting itself is a live meeting and the only information I have is that it's maybe in Kansas City at six o'clock. That's not useful to me. I don't even know what time zone Kansas City is in. But with clocks, you can search by location, so Kansas City, and then it will tell you what time zone it's in and it will correct it automatically. So I, I would have a Kansas City clock. 
You can rename them to be specific, so you don't even need to leave it, say, in Kansas City. If it was a particular user group or a particular company that you worked with in that time zone, you could actually change it. So the local time here, I've renamed that to Matt Bikes Headquarters. I know, but it's cute. Um, so it shows these clock faces. It shows the interfaces. So the attention to detail is amazing because it shows white for daylight hours and black for nighttime hours. It also has a digital display too, which shows next to the clock face. You can set that to either 12 or 24 hour display. It also shows beneath that digital display, which is incredibly useful, the relative days. Now, if that sounds odd, I just said that um, Pacific time is eight hours behind. So, for instance, if it was two o'clock in the morning here, yes, that's not unusual for me, then it would be um, six o'clock in the evening there. So the relative day display would say yesterday. Whereas if it's silly o'clock here, it's probably even sillier o'clock in Australia. And that may say tomorrow. So I find that incredibly useful as well. That is very useful. Because sometimes when you see a time, you think, yes, but is that tomorrow or yesterday? Yeah. You know that it's not today. It can't be because, you know, it's, it's light or it's dark. You can tell that from the clock. Um, I don't know why you would ever, ever turn that off unless you don't have any time zones. If you're maybe working through European time zones. But I would leave that on all the time. It's brilliant. Uh, one of the new features is that you can now set a hotkey to activate it. So you don't even need to move your mouse up to the menu bar and click the button. You can have a hotkey to activate it. Uh, another option is to start it at login, which um, I do do. Now, as I said, there was this huge update about 10 days ago and it was a major update um, and it meant changes to the data store, the data structure internally to the application, which meant that you had to re-enter the locations. Now, I'm sure we've all had software where you install an update and you lose everything. It drives me mad that. But this update, it was clearly stated by the developer. There was also an apology for any inconvenience. Now, just putting the fact there that he had apologised, which was very nice, but just just saying that you will lose data meant that before I updated it, because it's available via the Mac App Store, I activated the application and I took a screenshot of all the time zones. I was really grateful for getting that warning. There's another application I use, which is called Espresso, which is a web development tool, and it uses custom colour schemes. And I have a custom colour scheme in there, and it's the most ridiculous implementation of it. The custom colour scheme that you create, so there is an interface to create it, but I was actually bringing it in from somewhere else, um, is in the application. But where it stores it is in the .app file. So within the .app file, when you right-click and say um, show package contents, it's actually in there. So which means every time you upgrade Espresso, it deletes your colour scheme. And of course, you I remember that about two minutes after I've emptied the trash. So I have got a copy of it elsewhere, but it just drives me mad that there's no warning or anything. You know, you will lose and then a list of what you will lose. There's nothing. So you, I just repeatedly keep doing it. I'm, it's obviously my age or something. But I really appreciated being told in hand so I could take that screenshot. It also served to show me just how fast you can make entries in clocks because I had the thing back up and running with about eight to nine time zones in a, less than a minute or so. It was just so, so fast. Now, also in this update, they added a fantastic slider feature. This has to be seen to be believed. It is so cool. 
It lets you travel through time by scrolling right or left. Obviously, I mean virtually. If they implemented real-time travel, it would be worth a lot more than they're charging. So what you do with it, at the bottom of your dialog box that, that pops up when you activate it, you have a little scroller and you can grab hold of this scroller. It looks like the volume control in iTunes. So you grab this thing and you scroll left or right. If you're scrolling to the left, it takes you back in time. And if you're scrolling to the right, it takes you forward. Now you might think, what would I want that for? I actually find that really useful when I'm um, sending emails about webinars, seminars online. And I know that I'm only dealing with people in one or two time zones. If I'm dealing with people, if it's a public event, then I'll probably send them to that website, the one that you found, uh, time something. Date and time. I Date think. and time. But if I know that I'm only dealing with um, a limited range of time zones, then what I can do is it might be 10 o'clock in the morning here. And I might be looking at uh, five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm doing a webinar. If I drag this scroller to five o'clock, it will update all the clocks. So I can instantly see what time that would be in Pacific time and Australia, whatever, any way you like. And I can then put in the email, you know, if you're in X, it's this time. If you're in Y, it's that time. It's just brilliant for scheduling. Now, as if that isn't brilliant enough, when you've done that, you end up with a little sort of post-it note that hovers over the slider and tells you how much time you've added or taken away. So it might say plus five hours, 25 minutes. And I thought this is going to be a bit difficult because once I've done that, I then need to drag this scroller back, do I? And yes, you can. You can remove the scroller. But this post-it note has a little cross on it. And if you click the cross, it automatically returns to the current time, which is good enough. But you should see the animation. All the little clocks fly backwards or fly forwards. Yes, you got giddy with excitement on that oh, one. Oh, I did. I did. I love interfaces that, that you know they take that much care with. It was brilliant. You'd really need to see a video of it, but it is brilliant. I can highly recommend that. Now, I did mention it on Twitter when it very, very first came out, because when it first came out, they had an offer on it, and it, you know, it was about 59 pence or something. And um, Oz Rose from Hobart pointed out it wasn't available in their app store, and I couldn't understand why. This is surely universal. Um, I don't understand why it wouldn't be available in certain app stores. So maybe it's not available all over. I know it's available in the States. I know it's available in the UK. So if um, our Antipodean dwelling contingent could check for me, see if it's available yet, I'd be very grateful. It's now £1.49 in the UK, so it will be uh, equivalent wherever you are. It is available via the Mac App Store, or it should be available via your Mac App Store. And it's from a company called Studio Dalton. So I, I can highly recommend that one. I really, really like that. Like I'm saying, you know, a few years back, it would have been considered quite a niche application because how many people work in multiple time zones. But these days we all do. And because of that, it's just something really handy to have in your armory. So, um, yes, I love that one. Another good app. And it's got a cool interface to go with it. It has got a very, very cool interface because I was thinking I'm never going to get this back to the right time by dragging in. And I just thought, well, I'll just close this post-it note down before I try doing that. And then all these clocks whizzed around. It was fabulous. Like when um, mum said the clock's not telling the right time and she changed the battery. And it's one of these radio control things and it started racing round. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. That was equally just as much fun. I'm easily pleased. I uh, don't believe it. Anyway, over to you. 
Okay, the uh, the app, well, two apps that I'm going to talk about are both... You're not going to do one of your It's a Great App But I'm Not Going to Use It reviews, are you? No, we're not. Oh, good. What no, do you mean, we? I use, what do you mean, I we? Use, I never do that. I use all these apps. I use these two constantly. Oh, that's all right, then. Yeah, I love these two apps that I'm going to talk about. Right, in that case, I shall shut up. Thank you. The first one I'm going to talk about is TuneIn Radio. Um, I was I was thinking the other day, actually, uh, how many radios we used to have as against how many radios we now have. I, I don't own a physical radio. No, I don't think I do. Apart from the radio in the car, I don't think I actually own a radio. I mean, I used to have radio cassettes. I used to have alarm radios. We used to have the little one that we take to a football match. And now I don't think we've got a single real radio, have we? No, no, definitely no. not. Well, TuneIn Radio is an app for the iPhone and the iPad. It's one app, Universal, um, that allows you to listen to live streaming radio stations from around the world. I have used this, but I think I've only used it once. Right. Do you remember when we had that Apple event and somebody said there was a radio station in Australia taking a live audio feed? Yeah. And I tuned into it. And um, yeah. there was no live feed. But yes, I could tune into a radio station in Australia, which was really cool. The the they're virtually similar. The two the two apps are virtually similar. I'll talk about the iPad app a bit later on. But the iPhone app, you run it, and it has four icons across the bottom. You've got my presets, browse, recordings, and settings. Now, if you click on browse, it then lets you search stations, genres, uh, shows, songs or artists. And the results that come back when you search. So, you know, you could put in anything like 80s or a specific um, show, a specific program, a specific song or an artist. The Gumbay Dance Band, anyone? I'm sure you did. I did and nothing came back. Oh, that's a surprise. But the results that do come back include not only live broadcasts, but also archived recordings and uh, podcasts, uh, stroke audio on demand, depending on availability. So a lot of these radio stations that do streaming will actually store old programmes, old episodes uh, that you can then uh, listen to. And they're available within the results as well. Now, if you don't want to search from the home page, you've got a list of genres. You've got music, talk and sport. And if you tap any one of those genres, you can then drill down further by further tapping. So then you get a further list of choices. So as well as uh, as music, sport and talk, you've got recents, which is your uh, recently listened to stations. You've got one called recommended. I'm not sure how that works. I think it might be based on recently played music or genres. Um, you've got by location. So what that does is it presents you with a list of continents. You click on one, drill down. You get a list of countries from that continent. You click on one, drill down, and you get a list of stations from those countries. So it really is taking you through it you know, step by step. You can... Um, Go through, not search, but you can navigate through by language. So you get a list of languages. You click on one, you get a list of genres within that language. And you click on one, you get a list of stations. You see the idea of how it works? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, local. Local is quite interesting. It uses the phone's geolocation to display a list of stations in what they call the immediate area. Um, when I did it, I got about 100 stations within a radius of around 100 miles from Manchester, plus national BBC stations, um, Radio 1 through to 5. 
and at the bottom of this list of stations in local it says United Kingdom so it, it obviously knows where you are and if I click on that to drill down I can then browse by genre station uh, name or city and there it lists all the major cities in the UK what annoys uh, me about that though is you can do that but the licensing limitations mean sometimes you can't actually hear what you want to hear on those other stations. I'm thinking football commentary. Yeah, that's the, that's the classic one, isn't it? Um, you go to a particular... Well, you can go to, to normally the, the local ones, actually not particularly Radio 5, but the local ones, you're right. Um, you go to, to listen to a, a commentary game and it says because of the licensing, we, we're unable to bring you this. But the thing is that it would be being broadcast. It would be being broadcast within the local vicinity. So within on a normal the, on an actual licensing ra- yeah, area. On, an, on a normal radio, yeah. Yeah, but that, that means that you know, I can't hear a commentary from in the Midlands, but the people yeah. in the Midlands can. They might want... I mean, you're back to when TV used to put um, a United game on, a Manchester United game on, but there was a Scottish game on and people wanted to see that game. It's ridiculous. It is. And it, it, it's like you can listen to, talking to United, you can get listen to United commentary on Radio Manchester, but you won't be able to listen to it on Radio Manchester via the internet. Mm, exactly. You won't be able to listen to it um, on um, Radio Manchester via your browser. So then it depends where you physically are located. Yeah. And you would... If what, in fact, I don't know whether you could even test this, but would it? I, I don't think it would work. Even if you were in the right physical location, you'd need a a, a physical radio. You would. Ridiculous! Don't get me yeah. going. Yeah, but you can, um, as I was just saying there, you can go. You can get a list of all the major cities in the UK and then access all the stations that are related, if you like, to that city. So there are, there, I think it said there were 50,000, around about 50,000 stations that you could you could listen to. Wow. And once you've found a station to listen to, it's just a case of tapping the station name and after a few seconds of bu- buffering, it starts playing. Now, it will continue to play in the background, so it's got multitasking if you switch to another app. Um, it will pause automatically if you get an incoming phone call and then carry on um, once the, the phone call has ended. And the interface, um, it's a bit like the, I suppose, the iPod player within the phone. It's got a volume slider, or you can use the volume buttons on the phone. Uh, it's got a go back 10 seconds button. Uh, so if you missed something, you can re-listen to it. Uh, you can press that multiple times to go back further in increments of 10 seconds. The reverse and fast forward buttons go back 30 seconds at a time and forward 30 seconds at a time. Obviously, with the forward, it can't go forward of stuff that hasn't been broadcast yet. That would be handy for the sports channels. <laughs> that would, yes. You could actually get to the end of the game mm. and see what the score was. Um, it's got a pause button, which is great. So it's a bit like the old the, the Sky Plus. You can pause it and then carry on from where you left off. I'm liking this. It's got presets, which is similar to favourites. So what you can do is, on any station or genre individual program or even individual songs you can save those as presets and then you can go to your presets list and just play it back it supports airplay um to transmit to another device such as apple tv uh, we had a bit of fun with that last night didn't we We did <laughs> you wondered why my machine was showing and not yours 
Yeah, we uh, we we worked out just because you had a. Uh, oh, just a minute, just a minute. Never mind. We worked out. I would have okay. known instantly. You worked out. You worked, you worked out. out. Yes, yes. Um, I was none the wiser. I'm putting you off now, aren't I? You're putting me off. Yes, I was none the wiser, but you worked out that I it was get- airfoil that was uh, that was running. There is a free version and there's a pro version, and um, the pro version is all of sixty nine pence. That is so worth it. It is. It's well worth it. It's ad-free, but the great thing is you can record the currently playing station. And torment people with your selection later. Yes, it has a recorder built in. Now, a couple of downsides of that. You can't transfer the recordings to your Mac. You can only play them from inside the app on the device, which is something to do with Apple's licensing. There are ways around that. Yeah, I was I was going to say there are ways around that. I I tried the phone view app, but I couldn't get it off the, through the phone view app. But I know there's other ways that you could do it, which it would depend on the format, probably. Yeah, but there are I'm still not, other ways. I'm not going to go into the other. No, ways no, we'd be taken off air because it's a secret. <laughs> no, it's not a secret. <laughs> Shall we just say it's time consuming? It's real time transfer and leave it at that. Yeah, involving a cable. <laughs> which i didn't know about i said nothing carry on um you can delete the recordings just by swiping your finger over them tapping delete you know standard way of, of deleting stuff on the the i devices it's got a sleep timer so what you can do is you can select a station and then you can select from one of the preset values i think it's 15 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes and then the app will just turn itself off at that uh, that appropriate time that reminds me of something that i read this week um it was one of these uh, do you know tweets that people send uh, do you know that 83 percent of young people sleep next to their phone <laughs> and i thought what on earth are the other 17 percent doing with it <laughs> i sleep next to my phone you probably sleep with your phone yes no i'm not quite clutched in your in your sticky paw and we know that jane sleeps next to her phone yes as long as the two of you aren't sleeping next to the same phone i'm all right because we know what she does when she first wakes up, checks her Twitter. We do, feed. we do. Yeah. Yes. So now you um, can go to sleep with it as well, as well as yes. wake up to it. Yes. Um, it has got an alarm, actually. So instead of using the alarm that's built into the phone, um, you can wake up to your favourite radio station. That would be a blessed relief, because the last time you put the alarm clock on, you made a mistake and, and you use the one you use when you're taking the dog. So the the, the phone started barking. Which upset the dog greatly. He doesn't like being woken suddenly with another dog barking. No. Uh, a new feature um, is timed recording. You select a station, you specify a time and a duration. You can actually record for up to eight hours. The app must be running for it to work, but it does at least mean you can actually uh, set a recording, like um, a video recorder, mm. which is a nice feature. Other bits and pieces I've found is where appropriate, if you're listening to a certain song, um, there's a buy button appears. And if you click it, it'll let you buy the song from iTunes. Oh, this explains why Apple have let it in the store. Yeah. There's also a you may like. Uh, and if you click it, it'll display similar stations to the current one. Scary. So I'm guessing that's coming off, uh, working off genres and stuff like that. And for certain stations where it's available, you can go in and you can view the upcoming schedule for that station for the next 24 hours. Now, that I might actually find really useful. Yeah. Because I do listen to a lot of, um, oh, it used to be Radio 7, BBC Radio 7. Now I think it's called BBC Radio 4 Extra. I love that channel. Yeah. 
So you can see what's coming up. Now, if you actually click a, a show or a program, uh, because that program hasn't yet aired, it'll display uh, a list of, or it can, depending on availability, display a list of previous episodes that can then be played um, on demand. Ah, so that's like linking in with the iPlayer? Yeah. Oh, no, that, that's you even know. more useful. I don't think it does link with the iPlayer, but uh, it's, it's a kind of iPlayer concept. Hmm. You also get a choice, again, where available, of different formats and different qualities. So AAC, WMA, MP3, and different qualities like 32, 96, 128 uh, kilobits per second. Yeah, so you actually can go in and if you're listening to a station, you can then go in and choose a lower quality. Oh, that's handy to save bandwidth when you're out. Which is, yeah. Now, the iPad version, it's it's the same functionality, but you've got a nicer interface. For example, because there is room to display um, an icon or logo next to each station, you actually get the, the, the station's logo um, next to, in, next to the, the station name rather than just a list, which you get in the, the iPhone. And you also got on the locations, you, you get a map. Because you've got a bigger screen, you get a map and it shows you um, with red pins where the stations are um, in relation to where you're based, where your current location is. Nice. If you sign up for a free account, now this, this relates to both. If you sign up for a free account at tunein.com, uh, which I haven't yet done, you can share your presets across your devices. So you just log in on each device. And then it will. Any presets you've set on your iPad will be available on your iPhone. Any presets you've set on iTunes.com in your browser on your Mac, um, or I will say on your PC because it's cross-platform, they're available um, on all your devices as well. That's brilliant because even if you don't have multiple devices, it's a way to back them up. Yeah, it is. Um, Tuning.com actually lets you play streaming radio stations, the same fifty thousand stations, in a browser. So, you know, it gives you an interface rather than, for example, having to go to the BBC site and, and uh, if you wanted to listen to, to, to the sports on there, you can actually do it through this tuning.com. I'm sensing something else that they can ban at work. <laughs> yeah, they probably already have. Um, try it. Try it this way. It's also available for, because I know we have a few listeners that, that use Androids. It's also available for Android mm -hmm. and BlackBerry as well. Well, I use something similar to that, but uh, I haven't used that anything like using all those features. Um, I use what I think you're going to be looking at next, which is called Stereolyzer. Stereolyzer is cool. It, you see, that's the point. It's cool. The only thing I don't like it is, is, is that booming noise. You're doing it again. You're starting a review with what you don't like. OK, should we cut that bit and I'll say it at the end? No, carry on. The only bit of Stereolyzer I don't like, and I've got to mention it at the start because it's that booming noise that fires up every ah, time you're on the app. Yeah, every time you start the app, it's got like um, a guitar riff. I don't know if it's a guitar. It's like a boombox. Is it? No. Oh. Well, it's, it's a whatever noise, it, and it is quite it is, loud. it's a noise. And if you're playing it on full volume at two in the morning... As you do. Your housemates won't be impressed. Mm. So, yeah, make sure you have the volume turned down when you start the app. <laughs> but it is. It's another streaming radio. And what actually makes it cool is the interface. It looks like an 80s radio cassette player. It's a perfect representation. It doesn't just look like it. it and everything <laughs> it works as well. It's, it's amazing. It is. It's, you've got access to around 10,000 streaming They're stations. They're probably the same stations, but just probably accessed in are. a different way. 
Yeah. You've got three preset buttons that can store 10 stations in each. So you, you've got up to 30 presets. I don't think the other one has a limit, but I think, you know, I think 30 presets is probably uh, plenty. It's also got a manual tuning, tuning knob complete with interference. So as you're trying to tu tune across the scale, across the, the, the bandwidth scale, if that's the right word, you get the, the interference of the, the, the tuning. <laughs> that's reminding me of something. I'm thinking who on earth would want to um, reduce the quality of something and add interference to it. But do you remember, my father's a radio amateur and, um, well, an amateur radio enthusiast, and he got something that worked on the PC, do you remember? I do. And um, this guy had written this app from the ground up and it was sort of, I mean, it, it was like a chat room, wasn't it, for radio hams? But you, you had to have a call sign and everything, so it was a closed shop. And there was, you could go from one band to another. And he has spent thousands, as have all his friends over the years, trying to get better equipment and better aerials and a better experience and less interference, less noise on it. He spent thousands. And this guy, because it was based on a computer system, um, there was no interference. He got complaints. It's not like a radio experience. Can you please add some interference in? And he did. <laughs> I could not understand that. But there's my dad saying, oh, it's a much better experience now. <laughs> so it reminded me of that. And I heard you tuning it in and it does. It sounds just like a radio. It does. Um, the cool interference, a lot of it is for show. You've got... You mean interface, the, you... not interference. Interface, yes. Mm. I'm not well, editing that out either. <laughs> oh, the lazy editor here. <laughs> It's got VU needles. Now, I've, I'd never heard of them called VU needles until I started doing some research, but they're the, the needles that show you the, the, um, the volume that go up and down. We're not going into the going up and down again. I no. know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, it's also got a couple of uh, treble and bass knobs, but again, they're for show. But the volume knob does work. The on-off switch works as well. The on-off switch works as well. Now, uh, what happens when you put the headphones in? Because you showed me this. It was brilliant. Well, I hadn't noticed, um, you know, un until I actually had put them in. And what I was doing was I have a set of um, speakers on my Mac. Uh, I think they are Altec Lansing speakers. I absolutely love them. They are brilliant. Big boombox on, under the, the desk. And it has like a little controller where you can alter the volume and like you're saying, the bass and treble. And that's on the desk next to my Mac. And what you can do with it is you can also plug your headphones into it, which saves you rummaging around behind the Mac because your speakers are plugged into it behind the Mac. And it also has a line in. Now, it's not going into the Mac. It's actually going straight into the speakers. So so obviously the iPad doesn't sound too bad at all until you take, instead of plugging headphones in, if you plug um, a male to male audio cable in and you then plug that into this line in on the speakers, you get the full effect. And that's what I was doing. So I wasn't actually plugging headphones in. I was trying to play stereolizer through my massively wonderful speakers. Um, and as I plug the cable in, a cable appeared across the interface and plugged into the headphone socket. So again, a nice interface and I'm anybody's. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, that was, that was so cool. <laughs> so you actually see this headphone thing slide in and there's a cable comes around and it says headphones on it, I think, doesn't it? It does. It's wonderful. Brilliant. Great interface. Now, stereo... Uh, I'm not editing that out either, so get on with it. <laughs> stereo laser. Stereolizer can also record, but the coolest part of this, I must have said cool about 10 times on this review. <laughs> 
The coolest part of this is that the recorder actually looks like a cassette deck. You click the record, the on-screen record button and you actually watch the tape reels go round and then you click the stop button and the tape actually ejects. You do realise there are people out there, don't you, who don't know what a tape recorder <laughs> looks like? Yeah, <laughs> like sure a history are. lesson. Yeah. You then use the on-screen keyboard to write a description onto the tape label, which uses kind of handwriting font. And then to play the recording, you just pop the cassette back into the deck, um, close the um, the lid, if you like, and um, press the play button. And the fast forward and reverse buttons work too. They navigate through the recorded tracks. So you can record multiple tracks onto each tape. It's, it's brilliant. <laughs> and it's only £1.49 from the App Store. The only downside is the description is in French. Which goes to show that there can be things available in the App Store in multiple countries and it really shouldn't be a problem. So I don't know why Clocks was. Um, yes, yeah, mm. Stereolizer is one of those apps. I mean, it is very useful in itself. I, I use it all the time. I just love the interface. But... Um, you went into work and you just bought iPad 2 and obviously everybody at work knew that you had iPad 1. So you'd already had the, the questions of why do you need an iPad? Why would you spend that kind of money on something? You've already got a desktop, you've already got a laptop, you've already got an iPhone. What on earth do you need an iPad for? And you can stand there and you can rationalise with them forever and they take no notice. So when, of course, you then went to get an iPad 2, then you had a two iPads. So all the questions started again, didn't they? They did. Yeah, you've got an iPad 1. What on earth do you need an iPad 2? Because it's cool. And have you seen the cover? The cover's amazing. Right, but you start rationalising. You say, well, I use it a lot and I use this and I use that. And it's all like worky stuff or, you know, really clever stuff. And I said to you, when I saw this stereolyzer, I said, this is it. And you said, what? This is what? And I said, this, this is it. The next one that says, why do you need an iPad? Why do you need an iPad 2? And you got, I said, just, just open this up, show them that. And what happened when you did? They all got kiddie with it. I wanted to buy an iPad. Yeah, mm. so for £1.49, I think we paid 59 pence at the time. It was on offer. It was brand new. It, it re They understand. They instantly understand why they then need an iPad as well. So it it's worth £1.49 for that, to be honest, to stop all the stupid questions, <laughs> I find. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we go back to you for something you talked about earlier? Yes, I, I was saying about Adobe and, and their um, non-existent updates for Lion. One of the things that broke and has caused much consternation in the design world is in Fireworks. Now, Fireworks, um, people might not be aware, Fireworks is a graphics application. So you're thinking to yourself, well, Adobe have Photoshop. What on earth do they need another one for? Well, Fireworks came from Macromedia and Adobe bought Macromedia. But... It is a completely separate application. It does a completely separate job. So it's very, very geared to web design graphics. So I actually find if I'm mocking up a site, although 99% of the world use Photoshop, Fireworks is far better for the job. So they do have these two applications, but they're not based on the same code base because originally they were made by two different companies, which might explain why one has broken and the other hasn't. But Fireworks is, um, you have on most graphics applications, I think, even going back to Windows Paint, you had an eyedropper tool and the eyedropper tool lets you pick a colour off the screen. So if you're creating some artwork and you've used a sort of shade of red and you want to reuse that shade of red, you can use the eyedropper tool to pick up the colour. Now, over the years, that's become expanded to not only pick up the colour from your artwork, but also pick up the colour from anywhere. So you could have on your screen a browser and, and you could have a site open in it and you like the colour that they've used. 
So your eyedropper tool can, if it's programmed that way, actually come out of an application and pick up a colour from off the screen. The problem is with most of the Adobe apps and definitely Fireworks, I don't think it was programmed to do that. Now, what then happened was the Lion update came out and it broke the eyedropper tool completely. So now you can't pick any colour, be it inside Fireworks or outside Fireworks. And it was causing much consternation. And I thought, well, there are other things you can do. You don't actually have to use an eyedropper tool. You know, you could create a palette and do it that way. But all the other ways take much more time. And then I found this application in the Mac App Store called Colour Snapper. And it's brilliant in situations of broken software, but it's also brilliant in other situations, um, maybe where you're developing graphics across applications. And what it does, again, it's a menu bar application. It puts a colour picker in your menu bar. So what you need to do, let's say you're working in Fireworks and you've got this broken software. You can't use, well, you can, but it's not working, the um, eyedropper tool. So you go up to your menu bar, click the icon, and although this is optional, you, you can choose to have a zoom tool appear. You then move your mouse pointer around the screen and you can pick up any colour from anywhere. It doesn't have to be in an application, it could be anywhere. It could be your desktop, it could be an icon on the menu bar. What I did with it to test it was I had um, Amazon open in a Chrome window and you know the little fav icon at the top is ever so tiny and the Amazon smile underneath it is orange and I thought I wonder if it could pick up the orange which is only one pixel wide and if it could how easy would it be to do and it was extremely easy to do all you have to do move the mouse pointer over it move it round until you you get the circle around the area that you're looking at and then there is a tiny square and where when you left click or press the space bar it will pick the color that is underneath that tiny square and it will what it will do with it is it will change the menu bar icon so it is now the color that you have selected but the way colours work in virtually everything is that although you see a colour, it's represented by a number. And different applications use different numbering methodologies to describe that colour. So you may have heard of RGB and that uses three uh, separate numbers, three three-digit numbers to represent the colour. You may have heard of hexadecimal notation, which uses six characters to represent it and which one you use will depend on which application you're trying to work with or if you're using something like CSS where you can paste it in there. So what you can do with your number that it well the colour that you have selected and the number that it generates you can tell the application which format of number you want to use and again that will depend on what you want to do with it. You can also dictate a secondary um, format as well and you do that from the preferences of the application and then it's a simple matter of going into your application of choice and just pasting in the code that it generates and that will select the colour for you. So it's brilliant for broken software like I've said it's brilliant for cross-application development. I may have an image in Photoshop and I want to take one of the colours and use it in Pixelmator obviously not for clone stamping. And all I have to do is use that and then paste it into Pixelmator. Uh, web development, where you're creating CSS files, and you, again you dictate colour by putting in a number, you can just click paste and it will paste in the correct number. It also gives you, because it remembers the last few items that you've selected, it gives you a colour history. So if you've um, 
ever done this and we've all done it when you copy something I might copy a color code from somewhere and then I go and do something else and I copy something else to the clipboard and then I've got to go and I, if I'm using a clipboard extender go and find the number in the history of it or if I'm not using clipboard extender it's gone and I'll have to go back and I'll have to recopy it well this keeps a list of them and all you have to do is open up the menu and you can then choose one of the previously selected colors so if you work with color in any applications it's really worth it it's 2.99 from a company called cool sash and again available via the Mac App Store Yes, I'm thinking I will probably stick with this even if and when Adobe fix fireworks because it gives you far more options. It's a really cool tool. Yeah, I've used it as well. I don't use fireworks a lot, but the other day I was uh, creating some CSS and I wanted to pick up the colour of something, um, some, some, some graphic and use it. So I just went up to the, the, the menu bar and picked the colour, picked the dropper and then pasted in the colour. There are other ways to do that. Um, and we use another tool, uh, which is Colour Schema Studio, which is also available for the iPhone, actually. But the thing with that is it does work and it does work in, in exactly the same way. But it's, it's really I'd say it's more advanced and it's really for working with colour schemes because you can then save them. You can save a collection of colours as a scheme, hence Colour Schema Studio. For speed, this is faster, I would say. It is, because the other way means firing up an app, and this is this is there on the Well, not only bar. firing up an app, but when you use the eyedropper tool to, to select a colour, to keep that colour, you then have to add it on the right-hand side, don't you, to create yeah. a scheme. So... And like saying, there is another app open and then you're falling over an app. So there are more advanced tools maybe that would give you more features. But sometimes you just want something quick and easy that just does a simple job. And, and this does that. And um, he must have sold thousands to all my Adobe friends <laughs> <laughs> since they've broken it. Maybe Adobe have got part shares in it. Or maybe Adobe should have thought of making it. That would be very, very good. But uh, yes, yeah, cool sash, £2.99. Can't go wrong if you work with colour. But on to the hardware review, and guess what? After an episode off, I'm talking batteries again! No! It's a good toy. Not of an adult nature, I hope. No! And anyway, don't blame me. Blame McJim for tempting me with it again. After, I might add, I had shown great restraint and talked myself out of buying one. But when he reminded me... It was just too good to miss. And it definitely deserves. Ooh. Yes, I know I, I had McJim worried last week. McJim the real. As I blamed him for something. But McJim, it really was your fault. I'm glad you did, though. Right, what I'm talking about is a Moby Magic Charger. Yes. It's a rechargeable battery pack and inductive charger for the Magic Mouse. Now, as any regular listener will know, batteries. Oh yes, it's been going on for months. Um, I had settled on on-a-loop batteries and they were doing me quite proud, to be honest. They were lasting, oh, I think at the last count, I could possibly get over two weeks out of them. But then McJim mentioned it and it is a very, very cool toy. So I went to Amazon and I partook of it. So, as I say, I have a rechargeable battery pack and an inductive charger. The charger is USB powered and 
what you do is the battery pack replaces the AA batteries and the metal cover of a magic mouse. So you take the cover off, you take your batteries out, you're left with sort of the, the back carcass and you then replace both of those with the battery pack. Now the battery pack itself that comes with the Moby is a single sealed unit. Now it has a plastic base which represents the, it will replace the metal base of your battery cover. So you slot that in and then turn the mouse back over. Now it says to charge it for 16 hours, but I found there was enough charge in it to actually put it in and have a go with it straight away. So one of the things with the batteries when I was testing batteries was, did the mouse feel the same? because some of the batteries were incredibly light and it made moving the mouse, it just didn't feel right. With this, I would say it is exactly the same weight and it has the same feel. I could be the only one that worries about that, but it, I find that quite important. So despite the fact it's plastic, it doesn't actually make much difference, in well, no difference to me in, in the movement of the thing, in the use of it at all. Now the charger unit itself is slightly larger than the mouse and it's just under one centimetre tall. So it's very compact and it's just like a white plastic on the top. And all you have to do once it's plugged into a USB cable that comes with it is just place the mouse on top of it and it starts charging. So I would say the initial charge that was in the mouse lasted mm, probably about four to five hours. So I thought, well, I'll wear it down to nothing and then I'll see how long it takes to charge. And I'll see how long it will last when it's fully charged. Oh, the testing I do for the MacBiters. I charged it up, I left it on overnight, it was charged when I came to it in the morning, and I started using it, and I used it until it died on me. I would say I personally, with my use, would get around two to two and a half days out of it, which doesn't sound a lot, I will admit, but there again, my mouse is never out of my hand, is it? It's not. No, no I, I, am a, I, am a somewhat, I am a somewhat demanding user. Well, what I then had to do, because you don't use one, so I'm thinking, right, well, how would that compare? You probably charge your MX Revolution about once every three weeks, three to four weeks? I would guess so, yeah. Yeah, I was charging an MX Revolution about every four days. So I'm thinking it would probably last you two weeks. Yeah. But then you're at work all day and I'm working on my machine all day. So obviously it's going to depend on your usage. So I'm thinking two days for me. I couldn't guarantee much more than two to two and a half days use. The actual battery pack that you get um, is good for 350 to 400 charging cycles. So I know some people with these are putting them on charge every night. They're, they're treating it like the mouse's little bed, <laughs> which is very tempting because that way your mouse would never die on you. Um, but I'm thinking if I can get two days out of it, it should theoretically last twice as long. You can actually replace the battery unit. So you wouldn't need to replace the charger, but if the battery died on you completely, you can buy just a replacement battery unit. And that's about 25 to 26 pounds. I paid 42 pounds 40 for it for the whole charger and um, battery pack. It's now, as of today on Amazon, £45, but the price has varied by £5 in the last few days. So if it's £45, you might want to wait and it might go down a little bit. So the battery pack's just over half the cost. As I say, it, 
they recommend a charge of 16 hours I'd, I'd say if you're charging it from almost flat uh, you'd need at least 10. I have come back to it some mornings and it's not been fully charged um, that's probably me because I've probably only left it in peace for about six hours and then I'm back working. In an emergency, if you haven't charged it and it dies on you, you can just take out the battery pack and charge the battery pack on its own. Go on, ask me how I know that. How do you know that? It died on me. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh dear, I wonder if this actually needs the mouse wrapped around it to charge. So I took the battery pack out and I stood the battery pack son's mouse on the charger and it charges on its own which was very useful that also enables you to revert back to just any double a batteries in an emergency so um mcjim you did good boy you did good you tempted me with very very nice kit i insist you buy one now so i shall expect to be hearing of new arrivals at mcjim hq <laughs> Yes. Now, the company involved, Moby, also make a keyboard equivalent. It's not pretty. <laughs> I didn't think so anyway. Um, I will put a link for that in the show notes. It charges the keyboard and it charges the magic trackpad. The thing is, looking at the Amazon pictures, I really need to look at the Moby site, but looking at the Amazon pictures, I, I can't for the life of me see how it works, really. Um, it gives you a bar and you sort of sit your keyboard, the top bit of your keyboard, where the batteries are, in this bar. Now, I'm, I can't make out from Amazon whether you, lead, whether you only need to sit it there when it's charging and then you can move it, because like I say, I don't think you would want to leave that on there all the time. If you do need to leave that on there all the time, no, that wouldn't work for me. But I find, which, which was the start of all this trouble with the batteries, I find that the batteries last reasonably well in the trackpad, exceptionally well in the keyboard, it's just the mouse. And I've heard other people say the same, um, that the, the the batteries in the mouse, the same batteries, only last a matter of days or a couple of weeks. And they certainly don't last anything like the time of the keyboard. I'm on to my second set of batteries this year in the keyboard. So I got over six months out of the first set. I wish the ones in the mouse would last that long. But in the interim, it is expensive. But if you think about the price of an MX Revolution, which was over £100 retail, if you pay, I think the, the mouse at Amazon is 50 and this was around 45 it's still £95, which is a lot less than some other mice that do have integrated rechargeable batteries like your MX Revolution. Yes, you're right. It, it does make financial sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you see how I justified that then? Yes. Um, also from um, the same company, I believe, is something that... Uh, it's, in fact, it's so new, it's not even available yet. It's the magic number pad. Interesting. And yes, I thought, ooh, what's this about? So brand new this week, not even available yet. But it isn't what you think it is. I assumed it was a new magic trackpad. But are you looking at that link? I am now. It's not um, a new trackpad, is it? It's sort of um, a decal for the top of your existing trackpad which converts it obviously it's going to need some software i think it mentions the software doesn't it um does it mention the software 
Yes, it does. This thing ships with accompanying Mac OS X app that figures out where you touched it. So what it is, it's a decal with um, a drawing of a numeric keypad. It also includes, or it looks like it from this picture, uh, arrow keys and the missing keys that were on a full keyboard, um, page up, yeah, page, page down. Yeah, page down and so on. Yep, the delete keys. So you put this sticker on your Magic Trackpad and you install the application and you then have a number pad. I'm not sure about this myself. Cool, but no, I'm not sure either. Well, my problem would be, which I, yeah, I don't suppose it is too much of a problem, but I use my trackpad left-handed. Now, I know if what you're doing is replacing the original full Apple keyboard, then the, tra the, the number pad was on the right. So you're no worse off. But if you if you opt for that and you put it on the right, then despite the fact you can carry on using the trackpad, I'm assuming, without taking this thing off, it would be ridiculous if you couldn't, it would be on the right-hand side, so I'd spend all day shuffling it. It's also um, $30. And I think you can get USB number pads for less than that. So I would have to question the logic of spending $30 on a piece of plastic to stick on your trackpad that probably looks better without it. <laughs> yeah. But if you have a particular need for something like that, the option's there. I'm not actually missing my numeric keypad as much as I thought I would. I'm not. I'm not at all. The only thing I do miss is because of the way OS X um, interprets key presses, you could actually use the keys on the numeric keypad for shortcuts rather than the keys at the top, and it would treat them as separate. So I did have quite a few shortcut keys there, but apart from that, I don't think I'm missing much. No, me neither. I, I'm not missing it at all. No. It's so, just getting used to what you've got, I think. Well, I was convinced I'd never get used to a keyboard like that where there were so many keys because I, I suppose it was bad enough moving from Windows to a Mac but at least the arrow keys were in the same place and the thought of losing that many keys I thought well shortcuts I could probably do something else but I really didn't think I'd get used to it so much so when I when I acquired the first wireless keyboard I gave it to you yeah but I thought I'd never get used to the at and the speech marks being in the opposite places and I thought I'd never get used to reverse scrolling and True, but I actually thought I wouldn't be able to use it. I had some shortcut keys for Final Cut Pro 7 that did use the numeric keypad, Yeah. Um, which I haven't been able to replace. But now, of course, we've got Final Cut Pro 10 and they're not really needed. Also, in terms of shortcut keys and doing something with shortcut keys, I do have some software called Keyboard Maestro, which lets you program things together so maybe rather than needing two shortcut keys you could program it to only need the one then you yeah. don't actually miss the extra keys i'm not sure about the logic of this but i thought i'd mention it because it's from the same company and it's brand new this week but i do think their mouse has legs as it were <laughs> their um magic charger <laughs> yes rather than their mouse their magic charger has legs it's a very nice toy it's quite expensive but I'm liking it because it means I don't have to be fiddling with the batteries that usually end up on the floor, under the desk. Oh, it's terrible. They fly all over the place. And I wouldn't mind if I didn't need to change it every couple of days. So the honor loops are great if you want to just use batteries and you're happy changing them. But I'm finding this a bit better, which is just as well. 
Because if I wasn't, Muck Jim wouldn't be getting the kudos for it. Oh, no. He'd be getting the blame for it. So good call, Muck Jim. Good call. And after I talked myself out of it as well, what was I thinking? I must learn from that not to talk myself out of tech toys ever. Anyway. Oh, yes, it's time for Mac Love Bites. I don't think I can do this one. I'll only cry. I think I'm going to let you do this one. <laughs> it's from Jane. Jane of the new Jane kit. Jane of the new kit. I love my new 13-inch MacBook Air. As I write this, I'm sitting outside in bright sunshine working on a pages document and the big difference between this Air and my previous MacBook Pro is that although the Air screen is glossy, it's nowhere as near as reflective as the MacBook Pro screen. This makes it much easier to use outside with far fewer reflections. Together with its beautiful sleek design, this makes it the darling of my Apple gear. Want? Soon. Need? Soon. <gasps> need or want or neither. Need. Explain need to me again. No. Ah, uh, I thought it was like want, but different. Move on to feedback and comments. I'm still lusting after a 13-inch MacBook Air. Do you mind? Right, OK, then. I've lusted and having lusted. But seriously, Jane, sounds fantastic. I'm really, really pleased to see that you're enjoying it so much. Was that said through gritted teeth? Not in the slightest. Good. Now, <clears throat> on to feedback and comments, shall we? Yes, well, we heard from McJim, who was very worried. So worried, he posted twice. But then, I don't think you can ever have too much of McJim, so it was great to hear from you, and I shall wait to hear if you buy one. And when I say if, I mean when. Uh, yes, we also heard from Minster as well, who was <laughs> insanely risking life and limb by listening to MacBytes 52 whilst riding a bike. Not a good idea. No, I didn't think so either. But luckily he got home in one piece, so uh, good to hear from you, Minster. I also had an email from Andy asking if that photo was really me. You know, the one that Google missed. <laughs> Shall I confirm? Is it really me? Shall I confirm that it was? Well, you took it. Did I take it? You did take it. Oh, it was in the car, wasn't it? Well, I was asleep, so I hope you took it. I obviously wasn't driving in that case. <laughs> Not at the time, no. I was resting peacefully, whilst clutching an iPad too. Yes, it... Re Thank you. Thank you. It really was. Really is. Um, also, I had lots of positive comments regarding uh, my studio videos and slide iq so thank you very much for that um i shall hopefully be submitting it to itunes in the next week or so so uh, i will uh, give you more information about that when i have it from itunes and of course we have much more coming so watch this space i will keep teasing in it it's so good uh one of the things was that i put my videos onto youtube a couple of very sharp-eyed macbiters asked about my YouTube name. Uh, this is something that I can title, I think, Google Strike Again, don't you? Uh, yeah, that would be a good title. Well, you see, I didn't have a YouTube account. I had no need, I thought, to have a YouTube account years ago because I wasn't doing any video. So I'd go to YouTube. But since I wasn't publishing any video, no problem at all, I thought. And then I did have some video I got my iPhone for and I thought, well, I might want to upload some video. So I went to YouTube and I tried to sign up for an account. 
So obviously it said username and I put in Elaine Giles. No problem at all. It was available and everything was fine. But because Google had bought it, I need to growl here with annoyance at Google. <sighs> yes, Google had bought it. It wanted, well, in fact, it demanded, it wouldn't let me do it any other way, that I use a Google account to create my YouTube account. So I think if you already had a YouTube account, you were fine. But if not, it had to be a Google account. So I used my Google account, my Gmail account, which I didn't really use for much else and everything was fine. Then as time went on, and this was probably about oh, over 18 months, I put some videos up of the dog and just, just various odd videos, not, not much at all. And I'd created a Google Apps account and I used my Google Apps account all the time. So the problem was, if I wanted to post a video, I had to log out of my apps account and then log into my other account, upload the thing and then log out again and log into the other account. So I thought this is ludicrous. So I'll create one that I'll just put my work video stuff on. So I did, or I tried. There are options in there to go in and assign a different Google account to an account name. What could go wrong? Well, it's Google, you may ask. So I went in and I went through like five pages of instructions and I, I was, yeah, click here. Do you want to change it to this? That's fine, click here. So I did all this. I get through to the last page and it said, you can't do that, this is a Google account. I thought, I know that, I, I, I said that on page one. And what it was saying was that you couldn't change a username from one Google account to another, which left me with a huge problem. So I thought, well, that's OK, I'll create another one. And then I'm thinking, and what shall I call it? And I thought, I have no idea. Now, I could have used my middle initial, not a problem. The only problem with that is that I've used that. That is um, my Google account name. So I'd have, it would have been confusing. Trust me, it would have been confusing. So I decided I'd um, look for something else. And I thought about it for a few days, couldn't think of a thing. So then I went back and I thought, I need to create this account. So I thought, I'll let Google make some suggestions. <laughs> yes, I remember it well. Yes, whoever thought that was a good idea. Google's first suggestion, because what I did was I typed in Elaine Giles and it said, you can't have that, it's gone. So gritted teeth, I know it's gone. I've got it and you won't let me swap it, imbeciles. So it made a few suggestions. Would you like me to make some suggestions? And I, I, like a lunatic, said yes. The first one was Mr. Elaine Giles. This is the calibre of Google's suggestions. But one of the other suggestions was the Elaine Giles, as opposed to just Elaine Giles. So that's the one I went for, and that's the story of why I went for it. Believe me, the other options were even worse. But I thought Mr. Elaine Giles was a classic, especially considering by this stage you've filled in all the information that they want, you know, absolutely everything, back to birth. I must have said at some point I'm female, by the way. I just don't think there's a, any correlation between the data. No, clearly not. Clearly, But they didn't suggest Ms. Elaine Giles, Miss Elaine Giles, Mrs. Elaine Giles. No, just Mr. Elaine Giles, which was not good. So that's the story of how come I ended up as the Elaine Giles. They're both me. If you think there's an imposter, no, this time they're both me. <laughs> but one is one is an account I'll probably just put sort of stuff, the interesting stuff like the dog on. And the other account I'm going to put my um, work videos on. So that's why. That's why. Talking of Google, another murderous outrage this week, I see. Yes, they're killing off about 10 uh, things, aren't they? Yes, I think one was Notebook, wasn't it? Which... I thought was great. Notebook was great. We actually used that, didn't we, in the early days for the, the show notes. Yeah, about the first 10, 15 episodes yeah. we used Google Notebook. And it had real-time collaboration well before Docs did. 
and it looked like a notebook, it behaved like a notebook, which is the problem I've got with docs. It's a document. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, show notes, recording notes, they're not documents really, they're just notes. So I don't particularly want to see it looking like a document. So I thought notebook was great. We then moved on to Wave and obviously that died before notebook did. So they, they're not supporting that anymore. Uh, they've killed off the slide stuff I talked about last week. I think they're um, just following you around, killing off everything you use. I think they are. I think they're listening to MacBytes. So what else is she using? Right, let's close it. <laughs> So uh, 10 more go. I don't understand that, I must admit, because they're not a business that needs to close down certain things because they're, they're stretched financially. They're not. And if they, they want to say, well, we're closing it down to focus on bigger things or better things, fine, but you're going to dissuade me from trying anything that you come out with in future because I'm going to assume that within a matter of weeks or, or at, mo at best months, you're going to kill it. So I'm stuck with Docs at the minute and having to use it, but I fight Google on a constant basis, as regular listeners will know. Anyway, on the, in the vein of you can never have too much of a good thing, do keep your eye out this week. Uh, I'll probably mention it on Twitter that uh, the second episode of Slide IQ will be available. And I'd love to know what you think. Give me some feedback on it. I would love to hear from you. And I think that's about it, isn't it? We've. Uh, I think we've rubbished on I for long we've enough, haven't we? On, haven't we? Mm. So that's it. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, and queries to macbytesuk at gmail.com. There's a contact form on the website, or send us an audio file. Or even leave a comment on the show notes at macbytes.co.uk on the website. And don't forget to keep sending in your Mac Love Bites. And like us on Facebook. Oh, yes, please like us on Facebook not good with facebook at all no we know. people keep inviting me to games and things if only they knew how clueless i really was with it but and if you haven't signed up for the newsletter you can also do that from the website and follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash macbytes you can follow me at twitter.com slash thomas mike and you can follow me on twitter at twitter.com slash elaine giles so until the next time this has been mike and elaine bringing you macbytes goodbye see you next time goodbye oh I'm exhausted. So am I. Yeah. Good time to discuss the MacBook Air then. I don't think so. <clears throat> <laughs>